The problem with greenwashing is that it takes away consumer choice, basically. It, it makes them cynical, but it also mm. basically compromises the companies that are actually green or doing the right thing. Yeah. They lose business as well. So I think it's one of the areas that I think people genuinely have an opportunity to forge social change. Professor Melissa Nursey Bray is a researcher in the Department of Geography, Environment and Population at the University of Adelaide. She studies the link between people and the environment, and today she's taking on greenwashing. No matter what you produce, because the supply chain is usually so global and so complicated and involves so many factors, some of the literature actually says one of the issues is that a lot of companies don't even know they're greenwashing. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and in this episode, we'll be discussing greenwashing and how it insidiously invades our supermarkets, our clothing stores, and even our super funds. Join us as we pull the mask off promises and policies that pretend to do their bit for the environment and social justice, but don't. This is The Discovery Pod. Hi, Melissa, and welcome to The Discovery Pod. Thanks very much, Andy. So, Melissa, you're Professor in the Department of Geography, Environment and Population, Coordinator of the Environmental Policy and Management Degree, and Director of the Adaptation, Community and Environment Research Group, or ACE. Pretty long list of uh, (laughs) groups there, but I guess (laughs) you you work quite broadly in the area of sustainability. Yes, I do, yes. Kind of sustainability in people, really, isn't it? It's kind of that interface in that area. But we also know that, you know, kind of sustainability has become a bit of a buzzword, right? Yes, and uh, yeah, there's lots of, you know, kind of new sustainable products and processes that are out there. And another term that's kind of integrally linked in that area is greenwashing. So that's a good place to start. You know, what, what is greenwashing and how do we start overcoming that? Uh, well, greenwashing is a really interesting term. It was actually coined in 1986 by a researcher called Jay Westenveld, and he was basically looking at the Save the Towel movement in hotels. Mm. And he basically showed that, you know, they, they might be asking consumers or the people that were staying there to reuse their towels, as we all do when we go into a hotel, but that there was absolutely nothing else happening at any level in any of the hotels in terms of sustainability. <laughs> and so, Just towels. No. Yeah. So he actually, he actually deduced that what was actually happening was that the hotels were getting a cheaper laundry bill, and he, co- he coined the term greenwashing. So, I mean, ever since then, it's a term that's used to sort of talk about a fraudulent or a, or a deceptive representation of a company saying that they're doing something that's environmentally sustainable in one way, uh, form or fashion, but that, that that's actually not happening. Uh, yeah. Or there might be a smidgen happening, but 95% of the rest of the, the company is, is not sustainable. So ever since then, that's what the term has, has, has begun to imply. So first started in the hotel uh, yeah. sector, <laughs> but it's been more broadly applied as well, hasn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Any company, you know, from BHP, you know, Walmart, you know, local companies, basically anything where, you know, you're looking at your labelling or your packaging or or your carbon emissions or any kind of facet of sustainability, you know, people will critique it or interrogate what your environmental credential is and then what you're promoting it to be. Because a lot of companies these days, you know, they see that consumers do actually want to buy environmental, you know, and and numbers of studies, but 
but the Nielsen study last year came out and said that basically 66% of, of people surveyed said they'd actually be prepared to pay more for mm. a sustainable product. And 70, 66%. 66% yeah. and 73% yeah. of millennials are prepared to pay more. So, you know, that's a sweet prospect for a lot of companies. And so, you know, they want to look green. But the question is, are they actually doing that? And so that's where, you know, the greenwashing comes in. Many of us want to do what we can to slow the effects of climate change. And as a consumer, it means choosing products that are better for the environment. But do you know what you're buying does what it promises? The Australian Securities and Investments Commission has taken its first action for greenwashing against listed energy company Tulu Energy Limited. We're certainly seeing greenwashing as a concern for both consumers and for businesses. So this summit is about to turn into a fossil fuel gas greenwashing show with world readers saying the one thing and at the same time all over the planet expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. People will see through that. We can't allow greenwashing in the sense that you have companies like Ampol or Tokyo Gas say that they're carbon neutral when they have a huge carbon footprint that is getting burnt in another country. Voting with your wallet has become one small way in which everyday consumers can influence the world around them. However, greenwashing is a form of misinformation that can cause us to spend our vote on the wrong product and service, and ones which don't align with our values. There's a lot out there being greenwashed. The items in your shopping trolley, the clothes you wear, the airline you fly with, your car, your bank, your super fund. The list goes on. And it's not just a company's environmental actions that fall under the greenwashing banner. Zero waste or zero emissions, carbon neutral, how people are using and disposing of their waste, modern slavery or, or wage labour, whether or not people are being actually paid properly, the use of carbon in the sort of supply chain, cruelty to animals, social and environmental and cultural dimensions, contaminants, pesticides, how people are recycling or not, the types of materials that they're using in their packaging, social justice, the impact of a lot of chemicals on the environment and people as well, managing their emissions and are people being paid a decent With so much to look out for, how are we meant to know which brands are genuine in their social and environmental efforts and which ones are leading us down a greenwashed garden path? How do we navigate this minefield of misconceptions? How does a consumer kind of navigate just that that landscape because it's incredibly complicated, isn't it? Well, it is, and one of the reasons why it's complicated is because people themselves have different priorities. You know that if you're a, you might be more concerned about carbon than you are about recycling, and so even the choices that you make in terms of what you're looking for. And that's okay, isn't it? It's, you know, it's yeah, perfectly yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 We, we we all have our sleep. own moral you spectrum. Can sleep at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I mean, one of the things that's really important for for consumers, there's a number of things, and one is basically, you know, looking at labels and getting yourself a little bit au fait around what some of the, the labels are that will tell you that they're good. And one of the things that's important is to sort of be a bit educated around how you look at things. So, for example, the term natural is quite often used. But in Australia, for example, if you use the term natural, it just means that a company has to put a nice picture or, right. <laughs> or some nice natural words in there. And or that's it. That's, that's all, right. that's all they need. Yes, yes. So 
yeah. to qualify to use the word natural <laughs> right. in their products. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And things like wow. they might say 100% more recyclable and then you find <laughs> out that in fact it's gone from 1% to 2% right. of that yeah, product. Yeah. So yeah. literally speaking 100% increase but it, in the scale of things. So doing some research is quite important. Looking at the labels and, and according to those things that you might look at, is it recycling? Asking some questions like coffee, for example. Does it use pods? Is it fair trade? How much water is used? Water is a big one often. Where is it being grown? Is it grown in the shade or is it grown in sunny areas because shady areas, you know, encourages more biodiversity, mm. um, you know, all those sorts of dimensions. So you, you have to kind of educate yourself to ask those questions. But not everyone has the time to do that, right? So right. this is the problem. So Sounds the, like a full-time yeah. research right. project, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so there are some... <laughs> Can I get funding from that's the government right, to do that? Right. But, you know, like, yeah. uh, so there are some... Also looking yeah. for labels is really easy. So, you know, you might look at whether or not it's fair trade. You might look at whether or not it's from the Forestry Stewardship Council. So you have mentioned Organic. a few, haven't you? Mm. So which are presumably quite trusted. So yeah. fair trade yeah. Uh, yeah. relates to employment conditions. It does, yeah. yes. And, and you know, there's the um, certified organic kind of certification. Yep. So it's like, yeah, we're looking, is it using organic, um, is, it, is it produced in organic fashion? So there's, there's in Australia, there's about 17 of these sorts of certifications that you can look at. And that can be from anything from food to obviously building and development, you know, all the kinds of architectural ticks that you can get. There's mm. a whole, you know, spectrum of certifications that you, a company can apply for and, and get in terms of carbon and emissions and all those sorts of things. So any aspect, recycling, Whatever it is, there'll be certifications and, and sometimes looking for those can really help. But one thing that I do that I find e excellent is that there are a number of sites now where other people have done that research. Okay, huge. <laughs> which is huge. <laughs> and, and they've done it for you. And yeah. there's one called The Ethical Consumer. Um, so The Ethical Consumer. Consumer, yeah. yeah. And basically you can go in there and you can say, well, I want to know about, you know, if I want to buy a bookshelf or I'd like to buy, you know, some makeup or I'd like to put in a pool or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter, buy a car, you can actually Google it through this site and it will sort out for you down to the brand according to certain criteria, which are similar to sort of the things I said before, mm. as to what its ticks are. And of course, as I said before, because there's so many of them, you might find that something's like zero neutral, but then it's bad on everything else. Or you yeah. might find something, you know, get seven out of 10 of the things that you care about as against another item of the same kind. And so that really helps a lot. And you've got all sorts of sites like that. Another one's called the Echo Label Index, and that really helps with things like what has an Echo Label. I can't remember them all, but I do know, I mean, I, I teach environmental ethics and... Yeah. Um, you know, I, I list them all for the students and we, we get them to go in and basically choose a product like a shampoo that they use mm. and then go and find out what whether the shampoo that they use according to their own kind of interests ranks highly or not in terms of being sustainable and then looking at all the alternatives of that product, you know, mm. and there'll, there'll be a whole list and then again ranking them. And so you just, it just does the work a little bit for you. And then of course you can go to certain shops, you know, like in Brighton Road, for example, there's a supermarket, basically you walk in and, you know, you know that everything... They've done that work. Everything should be, you know, getting the halo happening, making you feel good that whatever you're purchasing is is going to be okay mm. from those things that you're worried about. So I think it's there's lots of opportunities to do it. But, you know, it just, it just does once you've done the initial research 
and and the, like for example for me I often worry about water and so I'll often be looking at you know how much water is produced in something and I'll make a choice based on that or for a number of years I haven't bought you know leather shoes from Brazil because as far as I'm concerned that's like I'm looking at defrostration because it's yeah. the leather from the cows that, yeah. that came from the trees that sort yeah. of thing so it's about encouraging thought processes in people and but making them think at a very basic level you just look at the labels and and think about and get support from these companies and people that have actually done it and also to support the companies that have made the effort and mm. put in that investment to yeah. get those labels because it's actually quite hard. It's often quite costly. It's quite a rigorous process. And once they've got it, they have to maintain it. And so supporting companies with those labels is also, I think, a positive way that people can distinguish and avoid or work out whether or not that product is, in fact, greenwashing or not. Yeah, and they're still in competition with mm. people that haven't made the effort. So, yes, that's right. And it, you know, this is a, it's a really interesting kind of area because, you know, on the one side you've got big business that's mm-hmm. trying to promote their their green credentials through yeah. something like natural, and it's not really right. No. So, but uh, you know, uh, access to very large marketing and uh, media budgets, yeah. you can push out a story. Yeah. But then on the other side, you've got a consumer base that uh, no longer trusts uh, those products and is seeking information around you know, where the sustainable products come from. And then you've got websites coming up yeah. and stores that are fulfilling that need. So you're kind of it's socializing that knowledge and information mm-hmm. so that consumers can make a choice at the end of the day. And it's kind of, it's a very powerful kind of social movement to break through that greenwashing area, isn't it? Well, I think it is. And I think it's a really important way of looking at it because, you know, the problem with greenwashing is that it compromises, well, it takes away consumer choice, basically. It it makes them cynical, but it also Mm. basically compromises the companies that are actually green or doing the right thing. They lose business as well. So I think it's one of the areas that I think people genuinely have an opportunity to forge social change. And, you know, there's, I can't remember what it is, but it's something like, you know, 27% of the world's emissions are are in fact from food production and or, you know, production generally of all sorts of aspects of how we live, eat and breathe. And so that's a lot of people that can make some choices in those areas. So with the help of trusted certifications, well-researched websites and rigorous retailers, we can slowly begin to peel back the layers of marketing and PR that some companies use to masquerade as mindful. It may seem like a lot of effort, but Melissa reassures us that there are brands out there who are putting in the work to have a positive impact. Take, for example, Patagonia. Yvonne Schwannard detests business, but he's a very successful businessman all the same. He's the owner and president of the sportswear giant Patagonia, which he describes as my resource to do something good. And the reason why Patagonia is trending right now is because the founder gave the company away to the planet. But what he's decided to do is to give his whole company to foundations and trusts that will make sure that all the profits that are not reinvested in the companies are becoming a dividend for climate action. While the remaining non-voting stock will be given to a not-for-profit called the Holdfast Collective, which will use the money to protect nature and biodiversity, Patagonia will remain a for-profit retail business, but the profits generated by the sales will be given directly to the Holdfast Collective to address climate change. That's expected to be roughly $100 million a year. 83-year-old Yvonne Chouinard, who started Patagonia roughly a half century ago, said we are making Earth our only shareholder. 
Patagonia is just one example of a company that's putting its money where its mouth is. Why don't you put your favourite brands to the test? We put a link to ethicalconsumer.org in the show notes. That's the website Melissa is talking about, so you can kickstart your fight against greenwashing. There are a lot of familiar brands worthy of a halo, as Melissa puts it, starting with a local South Australian favourite. Cooper's Brewery in Adelaide is okay. a really good example, so you can feel really good get the halo happening drinking Guilt-free Cooper's beer. beer. Oh, that's what I like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and things like the Australian, uh, the company, you know, who gives a crap, the toilet paper, <laughs> co-cleaning products. Oxfam apparently ranks number four in terms of, yeah. you know, companies. They've been companies. doing it for a long They've time, been doing well, it for a long time yeah, as well. Most yeah. people would know about yeah. Oxfam. Of course, companies like Fairtrade who've and have sort of started off with a coffee and they've branched out to all sorts of things now, so you're looking very much in the social sustainability thing, but also like things like are people working in there, but also things like how is that relationship building in terms of the plantations, in terms of, um, you know, building towards either regenerating biodiversity or protecting it from further destruction. And I think I think for me, one of the things about the whole greenwashing thing is that often it does get very wound up or interconnected with, I guess, human survival or, you know, what mm. we want to do, plastics, for example, or the use of water. Ultimately, you know, that the discussion around that that is convincing for a lot of people is, well, we want enough water to drink and we don't want to eat plastics in our fish. But we're being threatened, yeah, basically. Yeah, we're being we? threatened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why some of these companies, I think, work. Whereas I think, you know, it's really good to see companies uh, like Patagonia and others say also investing their money into biodiversity conservation and also awareness raising because, you know, ultimately that's all connected. So palm oil, for example, you know, oh. is, is a tricky one. And, and palm oil, if you do some research on it, you know, it's destruction of forests and, and therefore it's Orangutan a biodiversity habitats, thing, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and for example, that's a good example of something I have I, I have no easy answer to, but, you know, I still am not comfortable or I'm not totally convinced, for example, to buy in the sustainable palm oil. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what that means. It, it means to me that the piece of land is so hacked anyway that everything's been taken it off cleared, it, so yeah. it's okay. <laughs> so in a way, that's okay. But in in you know, it? it's it's, it's out of remove. The biodiversity destruction is out of remove. But then yeah. I, I still can't bring myself to do it. But other people feel comfortable seeing that sustainable palm oil certification. So sometimes that's that's what I mean. It comes back down to that personal thing because some of these certifications they are no doubt excellent and they're they're proper, but your own reaction to them can also be mediated by your own priorities. In in my case, uh, you know, uh, I, I will tend to uh, move towards something that that's actively saying we're also pro- investing in biodiversity as well as people. And, it, and it's probably an evolution rather than a revolution it of is, yeah. uh, consumer base, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah. probably going to be very difficult to change all products overnight. And in some areas, you just may not be able to get the product. But if consumers are demanding that then you're going to start getting suppliers that are moving into that space. And does, yeah. does your research look in that area? How does your research interface with this whole greenwashing area? I think I think it, it interfaces quite a lot in the sense of looking at social justice issues. So, for example, you know, greenwashing occurs, but, you know, looking at how, which is my, my research area, how communities respond to that and become impacted or or have a voice in terms of the decisions that are made about things like this. Mm. But, you know, if you're in the middle of India or Bangladesh or something, you know, and it, it's like, is that even a conversation? So for me, the whole greenwashing thing is really important. Yeah. But there's something deeper and more fundamental around ethical consumption and development. So I'm not just talking about the food that we eat, but I'm talking about the products that we use to build things, the emissions that we use in just about everything across the board. 
And how do we go into countries that are developing, that have the aspirations of the Western world, but in order to fulfil them, it means that we're eating up even more planets. Then to me, the greenwashing thing is not just, it's particularly invidious in those places and particularly culpable. So I'm kind of interested in, you know, teasing out what are the social justice implications of that? Or how do you encourage something like ethical consumption or lifestyles uh, in places that basically aren't really thinking about it because they're thinking about the next meal. And if that means like, you know, I can think of lots of different places, but I won't name them, you know, you'll go to beaches where there's, you know, really poor, but they're just like layers of plastic. Yep, not their plastic. Not their plastic or multiple slums in multiple cities where there's just rubbish everywhere. And it's not because they don't want to recycle, but or their product, but that those structures aren't in place. So there's something about governance, I think, in terms of environmental governance and corporate governance that's really important where companies are forced either by, by the law or some form of regulation. So certification is like a soft, soft tool. And voluntary. Whereas, often, and voluntary. Yeah, yeah. But a corporate governance sort of regulation thing, I think, is also equally important. And, you know, how do you set up those systems of governance and how do you compare them and how do you speak about them in a differentiated but adequate way when you're looking at different nations and different socioeconomic and cultural circumstances? It's an important point. For some, the fight to overcome greenwashing is a chore, but to others, it's a privilege. Looking for a trusted logo on a product is one thing, but when we scale this challenge up to a national level, the choices that are made become a whole lot more complex. While some countries can afford to make sustainability a top priority, others must put food security, clean water supply, and day-to-day safety of citizens first. So how do we balance the need for progress with the need for sustainability? And what must be done on a global stage to make ethical choices and lifestyles more accessible? So countries like Australia can play a role in terms of, you know, leadership as Scandinavian countries, uh, you know, yeah. often are seen to do. But how do you work with that kind of intergovernmental framework, which is hugely complex, I guess? Well, I don't know. I think I think that's where the value of some of those international memberships or organisations where people create these alliances, both developed and developing countries, and mm. where they can have those discussions are valuable. And I mean, you know, for example, in the climate space recently, obviously, you know, there was a decision there to make an agreement to compensate for loss, at financially comp, compensate yeah, for yeah. loss at the, at the COP. And, yeah. you know, that there is something there that is quite important. And it's about perhaps having international fora where the voices of the lesser advantaged nations can be heard. And some of the ways in which those solutions might be brokered to help implement some of that policy or some of that. Because, you know, most of them, you know, the policymakers and the governments in all of those countries would still be, you know, aware that there are these issues and they are still issues. Mm. So I think some of that working out that international support in different ways. I think, I personally think that's, that's NGOs... Quite a, that, that's quite yeah. a hopeful message, actually, because often we yeah. hear, you know, bad news around the, the environment. But actually what's, what's changing is the culture... And the, the conversations are starting in that space where they just weren't weren't conversations no, right. five or ten yeah. years ago. 
and change starts with those conversations, doesn't it? Yeah, it does start with those conversations and, mm. and people trying to listen and hear to each other and, mm. and, and you know, it's a s- sort of a slow process, but it's actually being accelerated by the level of crisis at the yeah, moment the need, and, yeah. and the more in-your-face uh, nature of climate change, which, mm. you know, even five years ago um, absolved people of the, of the responsibility of trying to work out what to do. It's much more in-your-face now. So I think something like that in terms of product development, energy development, you know, and in investing in companies or companies investing in ways that look at alternatives is really important as we move forward. Imagine, imagine uh, that tomorrow you were awarded a very large research grant <laughs> to do whatever you wanted uh, in this space, and you had 10 years. How would you make history? Oh, okay. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> well, I think one of the things I'd think about uh, is is I'd try and frame a project that, that wouldn't end up with me just falling into sort of conventional ways of seeing and doing. So I think one of the things I try and understand is the tension between the local and the global. So the, f- the first thing I try and understand is is at what scale a project might be run bec- and, and trying to resolve that tension because in the whole thing about greenwashing is that it, it, it uses big ideas and it uses um, fraudulent ideas mm. to promote something that makes you feel good. Mm. And then you find out, oh, that's disappointing, that's not really what's happening. And a lot of that happens on a global scale. So I think, you know, some research would be really good around trying to understand how to connect companies uh, in various spaces to conversations that are global in scale. Because one of the real conundrums, I guess, about the whole echo, the greenwashing thing, is that one of the reasons why greenwashing occurs is because so many products these days, you know, the supply chain is really complicated. And so you've got a supply chain where, in fact, it might be saying, oh, we've got this great recycling credential and you buy the product, but then you find out that the soap inside it is created in some factory in Bangladesh where people are paid next to nothing Mm. and, you know, dying in fires and all the rest Mm. of it. And so... To me, a piece of research that I think would make history would be around looking at working out ways with companies, trialling it on how basically from cradle to grave across a global supply chain, you can change the way that the products are developed so they are actually more sustainable. And sometimes that actually might mean a total shift Mm. in the imagination of how that product is developed. Mm. Maybe you actually invest, for example, in infrastructure in Australia, so everything is done on site, you know, things like that, where you can create more contained supply chains which have less impact and where you can source materials that are genuinely more sustainable. But So I think that's the biggest weakness in trying to encourage people or just for companies, no matter what you produce, because the supply chain is usually so global and so complicated and involves so many factors, and some of the literature actually says one of the issues is that a lot of companies don't even know they're greenwashing. Right. <laughs> they, they believe what they hear and they yeah. say and they do, but in fact... Because they're told by yeah, their suppliers. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or they might say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm doing this one thing. I've got recycled paper. Mm. But they don't realise that, you know, in fact, the paper comes from a factory in Brazil that, in fact, is not paying the workers or, or whatever the thing is. So I think in order to change it, I think 
you need to change the supply chain and how it happens. And that would make history because it would upend what is a very global world at the moment to look mm. at more local ways of doing things, which would have multiple benefits, but is not going to be good for people's back pocket. So it would require an immense imaginative change in how we do business in the Western world, particularly. Wow, what a vision. I mean, it's a complete <laughs> redesign of our supply chains. It's also moving from punishing and uh, regulatory control into one which kind of also moves profit up the supply chain to the production side, which yes, could easily be yeah. rolled out then into developing countries so that more profit is delivered at the point of production. That's so instead right, of selling yeah. you know, a commodity product, then it's sold as a value-added or premium product from those sources. And then you also get the story, I guess, of the community and the people That's right, involved uh, together in with that. Yeah. yeah. So, Melissa, thanks very much. You've really taken us on a journey to really understand the minefield that is sustainability, how we can start to avoid greenwashing, but I think also the hope that's uh, within that sector that things are changing and there is an attitude for change. So thanks very much. Thanks for being on the Discovery Pod. Thanks very much, Andy. I've appreciated it. If there's anything that this discussion has shown, it's that the power is in the day-to-day decisions we make. While greenwashing presents challenges for individuals, companies, and international governing bodies alike, every choice, vote, and purchase we make can move us closer to a world we want to live in. Thank you, Professor Melissa, for sharing your research with us today. And thank you for tuning in. We hope you found this episode insightful. If you like what we do here at The Discovery Pod, leave a review, rate us five stars, and share us with your friends and family. It's the best way for us to grow. In our next episode, we'll be examining the disconnect between men and their mental health with Professor Deborah Turnbull. Having a kind of a masculine mindset can be an impediment for reaching out. But here's the thing, it only explains about 10% of the multiplicity of reasons that men and health services aren't engaging. Join us as we discuss how our health system can better provide the care needed to support men with mental health challenges. In the meantime, if you have a topic that you think we need to explore, you can get in touch with us at podcast at adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. So, what do you want to know next?